welcome to The Straw Hat with Rabbi David Wolkenfeld and Rabbinate Goldie Guy. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. So we are recording on uh, Tuesday, the 10th of November. Uh, this is the 23rd of Marcheshvan, 5781. And as we're recording, the... The Jewish world is still reeling from the news of the recent death of uh, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who was the uh, chief rabbi of the United Kingdom for a number of years, about a decade ago, and before then and since then has been a really, really important uh, public intellectual and author uh, and speaker. And uh, I thought it was appropriate to um, you know, take some time on the podcast to discuss uh, his legacy and, and what he meant. Uh, you know, to me personally, as uh, someone who appreciated a lot of what he wrote and said, and also what he meant for for our community. Did you, did you ever meet him in person or hear him speak in person? I believe I have heard him speak in person. I never met him. You know, lots of people on my newsfeed are posting pictures of them uh, with Rabbi Sachs and, and memories. I'm in this actually really, really lovely Facebook group that's collecting um, eulogies for him and memories from people since he wasn't able to have, you know, a proper funeral. Uh, and uh, tribute to him. So I've been reading a lot of those and learning a lot about who he was. And uh, his Torah certainly impacted me. I've been searching through a lot of his Torah and incorporating his Torah into my learning. And I'll have some of his Torah. It was incorporated into our shir on the Global Day of Jewish Learning, which happened this past Sunday. Uh, and it'll uh, I'll be quoting it in the upcoming Parent-Child Learning as well. His, his learning is so vast and what he touched on and the, the multiple ways that he that he framed his Torah and for different audiences is, is just remarkable. Um, his reach and his the depth of his learning and his ability to reach so many different people. I've just yeah. been kind of reflecting on that since he passed. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. It was really, a, it was really he was a unique uh, person. I, don't, I can't think of any other um Jewish religious leader or, you know, who had that kind intellectual. of um, yeah. impact, right? Sort of part of like really broad intellectual conversations that transcended the Jewish community, right? He was really important, you know, like public intellectual in the United Kingdom and also in the United States, really beyond, you know, issues of parochial concern just to uh, the Jewish community. And I think that that really made him special, even as his writings were actually, you know, to a great extent, really were focused on Jewish concerns. He wrote about the Parsha. He spoke about you know, the Yamim Tovim, and, and he has a, you know, commentary in the Haggadah, like all of these like very, you know, classic, normal Jewish concerns he wrote about with great depth and, and insight. Um, but he then did so in a way that was really um, relatable to the broader public. I, I, met, I met him a few times. I um, he came when we worked at Princeton. He passed through Princeton a few times, and mm. I was able to meet him. And I think the first time Sarah and I had a meeting at his hotel with Rabbi Saxon, with Lady Saxon, that was sort of very mm. fun and, and, and really exciting uh, thing for us uh, as like a young rabbinic couple to be able to meet uh, with uh, you know the Lord and Lady uh, in, their, <laughs> in their hotel. Uh, the, Do you the remember next what you spoke about with him? I, I I don't I don't have a firm memory of, of of the content of that conversation. Just that it was a really delightful uh, opportunity for us. He came back a few years later to give a lecture at Princeton Theological Seminary, which is mm. um, not affiliated with. It's a separate school. They ordain uh, Protestant ministers, and you can also get you know a MA in like divinity there. Mm-hmm. So he was. Um, asked to give an endowed lecture, and someone from his office contacted our Hillel, where Sarah and I worked, to see if you know we could arrange uh, kosher food for him at the reception 
uh, at Princeton Theological Seminary's president's home uh, prior to the uh, his his lecture. So I, so you know, we were the only you know like the closest you know anything that could provide any kosher food. So so the Hillel Kitchen you know prepared this this dinner uh, that we would then send over to. Uh, the ha- home of the, pre- the president's residence at Princeton Theological <laughs> Seminary so that he could have this reception. But I, I explained that there needed to be, you know, a mashiach who had to go with the food. You know, once you can't send out food, you know, to a non-kosher kitchen and have mm. it be served, you know, and, and, and without, you know, somebody has to supervise it. So I, I, I volunteered to go along with the food. <laughs> so I, I, I got, so I, I went and I kind of you know, hung out in the kitchen and, you know, made sure that the food that came from our kosher kitchen was the food that they served to Rabbi Sachs. Uh, and, and then, of course, I also... Um, was able to use that to turn that into an invitation for us to be there at the reception. And then we got to hear the lecture, which was delightful and, and really, uh, you know, just w- wonderful. That was like a fun uh, meeting. And he came, I think, a third time when we were at Princeton. He, he can, he's come. He went there subsequently after we left as well. He was a regular uh, speaker there. He had a lot of close friendships with members of the faculty. And uh, uh, so mm. that was sort of like a fun, you know. Some, some, when we moved to Princeton, someone said to us uh, uh, that um, if you're there long enough, everyone passes through. <laughs> it's sort of a you know, small town, but if you just stick around, people pass through. So he passed through a bunch of times, and that was uh, really exciting. I, I, one of his, his writings that, that really spoke to me, he wrote a review of a book by Rabbi Norman Lamb, who, who also actually died just a few months ago. Uh, we, I think we, we, we spoke about him on the podcast. Rabbi Lamb wrote a book in the 90s called Torah Umada, in which he sort of presents this theology of... Um, the embrace of Torah studies along with general knowledge, uh, Torah umada. Uh, that was like the the motto that Rabbi Lam really championed, and uh, you know it's the it's literally the motto of Yeshiva University, where Rabbi Lam was president for many years. And uh, Rabbi Sachs, who's a younger scholar, wrote a review of this book by Rabbi Lam, and the point he made really a very profound point. He summarizes the book, and you know it was like as one does in a review, and says that the. Uh, the, the vision that Rabbi Lamb embraces is too narrow or somewhat dated insofar as Rabbi Lamb is focused on the question of how much Mada do we incorporate into our lives and worldview as Orthodox Jews? Like what of the general wisdom, science and humanities, you know, liberal arts, you know, do we um, take in and, you know, into our devotion to Torah and mitzvot. And Rabbi Sachs said, well, actually, you know, that's, that's, that's only one half of the question because we're also uh, shapers of Mada, right? We, we are, mm-hmm. you know, like in really like powerful, influential positions in academia and in the professions and in government. And, you know, we're not, we're not just um, accepting with this permeable filter, you know, this filter of things from the outside. We're actually shaping. It's a two-way street. And really, that's also a question that the modern Orthodox community has to a- ask and, and really struggle with. It's not just what do we take in from the outside world. It's like, what do we have to contribute to the outside world? How do we shape their culture, right? Or all of our culture, right? How do we, this common culture we share, this community we share with our neighbors of every religion, how do we shape it? How do we improve it, uh, and uh, that 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 essay I think is really a masterpiece. And um, it, it was it's it's it was in an obscure British uh, journal, but it was subsequently reprinted in the um, the new edition of Rabbi Lamb's book. Actually, they printed the review, which speaks to Rabbi Lamb's greatness, right? That when they reissued his book, he uh, they, they printed as a foreword the um, you know somewhat critical review uh, that someone else wrote about it. That's printed now as the foreword, but it, it's really easy to access it now. It's a wonderful, wonderful essay. I really recommend it if you want to get an access to you know access to Rabbi Sachs's thought. I think it's a really important like statement about like an agenda for modern orthodoxy that it's not just what do we take in, it's like what do we contribute. And I think that's. To me, that's really important, and it's a question we should really always be asking and struggling with. And, and I'll say another, um, like, just piece of praise of Rabbi Sachs. I, I think his gift was 
uh, his ability to um, like express core Jewish ideas in language that was like so clear that it was like, oh yes, of course that's true, right? And I and I knew that all along, but somehow it had never been articulated before. It had never been. Um, like expressed before, now I get it, and now I can also like explain what I do to others, right? So, mm. uh, whenever people come to our synagogue without any exposure to Judaism before, any or maybe they have exposure to Judaism, but they don't have exposure experience with Orthodox tefillah, how we pray, what we say, I give them Rabbi Sachs's trans, you know, the Sidor, the Corin Sachs Sidor with his translation and his commentary, right? He was a masterful writer. He appreciated the English language, and so the translation is beautiful and eloquent and reflects somebody who knew Hebrew. And like, you have to be in love with two languages to write a good translation. He certainly uh, had that. And his commentaries, you know, can really you can hand this commentary to somebody who has never been in a synagogue before. And they can read the introduction, they can read the commentary, and they can say, oh, like now I get why you do what you do. Now I understand what's happening around me and, and that it's, it's a profound, beautiful ceremony that's unfolding with really deep meaning that, that really any human being uh, who's thoughtful um, and open-minded can appreciate. Uh, and he, he has um, essays about all the holidays that, that really do the same thing, that really you know, could get to the core. Like, what is, what, what's the message of this holiday? What's the theme of this holiday? And you, know, you don't have to have, you know, grow up Jewish to like, understand what Yom Kippur is about, what Sukkot is about, what Hanukkah is about. Uh, and he had a real, just a remarkable gift in being able to like, understand that, that core idea and then express it in a way, that language that, that really anyone can, can appreciate and respect. And I think it's also not just a sad coincidence that this is you know, the year of the death of so many great, great rabbis and, and leaders of all kinds, uh, you know, not just our community, of course, but, but you know, particularly in our community, uh, that um, Rabbi Sachs and Steinseltz you know, died within a few months of each other when uh, I think that their agendas were, were both really similar and, and also you know, so somewhat different in, 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 in helpful ways to articulate Rabbi Steinsaltz believed that the Torah is the birthright of every Jew and that giving Jews access to the Torah, right, meaning like the actual Torah, the five books of Moses, meaning the Talmud, uh, meaning, you know, the mystical literature, uh, like the core text that defined what it, you know, the Jewish conversation for hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, like that's the birthright of every Jew. And, and to give Jews access to this source of wisdom and this source of meaning and this foundation of identity is the most noble life mission a person could have. And that was certainly Rabbi Steinsaltz's mission that he really exemplified and excelled at. Uh, and, um, uh, Rav Sachs, I, I think, believed like one step further. Right? Not only is it the birthright of every Jew, but the wisdom contained uh, in, in our very particular um, texts and our sources uh, also can speak to like universal concerns and have something to contribute to these like universal conversations that all human beings share. And so, uh, I think those nuances are significant. And, and but like the, that common mission of helping people relate to and discover wisdom that's inherent in very old texts. Uh, but like wisdom that's really very contemporary and meaningful and modern, I think is, uh, uh, to me, is like a really a common mission of the two of them. As you were reflecting on the how uh, Rabbi Sachs kind of taught this Torah of us impacting halakha as modern people, as citizens of the modern world, and the world impacting halakha in turn, uh, it had me thinking about a, a recent question uh, that came up from a congregant, um, that uh, it's a sugi that I'm now delving into with them, and I am happy to have this great zechut to to be able to learn um, with with congregants and to learn new things. So, so the question came up about 
um, urban halakha and how we define a city, how we define our boundaries, and whether or not definitions given in our halakhic literature reflect how we conceive of city boundaries, community boundaries, um, urban planning. Right? How, do, how do the two um, realms kind of, do they reflect each other? Is there overlap between how halakha talks about the city uh, and, and boundaries and boundary making and how modern urban planning studies thinks about it? So that's the a question that we're, I'm thinking about now. Um, That's really, really cool. I, I heard you, I heard a few like phrases from your conversation, your uh, discussion with them sort of wafting over through, you know, through the wall, my office wall this morning. It sounded like a really <laughs> cool conversation. And, and I sort of started me thinking like, it's, it's cool. So what are the, what are the, what are the areas of halakha in which you need to know, are you in a city or not? Or where does one city begin and one city end? Like what, what did you come up with so, so far? Right. So there are, there are two main questions that I'm going to now be exploring in the halakhic literature and then bring it back to my, uh, to my wiser uh, uh, counterparts who know about urban planning. Um, mm. That's not my realm. But um, the, the two main questions are like the nafkaminas, where this would come out, uh, which is where these definitions would play out, are um, number one, saying tfilat haderech, the wayfarer's prayer, right? when we move from one place to another, that we uh, pray to God asking for protection, that we have a safe journey, uh, that we go and come in peace. Um, so there are different um, halakhic requirements that trigger the need to, to say this prayer, right? When, when are we obligated to say this prayer? And it would seem, right, when it, that it's when you're going from city to city. And so the question is, well, when is that, right? How do I know that I've left a city limit and I'm going to a new city. Um, when have I left uninhabited places such that I'm in danger and I need God's protection? Um, so that's one area. Uh, and the other area is a uh, Tchum Shabbat, which is the uh, distance that you're allowed to walk beyond uh, your city on Shabbat, right? Before you've kind of gone too far. We're not supposed to leave uh, the limits of where we are. We're supposed to kind of uh, Shabbat, see Shabbat as a day where we kind of accept the world as it is, stay in our places and be in the present moment. So traveling too far would be to say, you know, I, I'm moving, I'm leaving. I don't want to stay where I was on Friday night as the Shabbos came in. Um, so that's the, the second area of Tchum Shabbat. How far can I walk uh, on Shabbat before violating uh, this precept, before going too far? And that Tchum has to do with city boundaries, right? Of saying like, well, you're allowed to go... Uh, 2000 Amma from where my city ends. So the question is, well, where does my city end? Especially in an urban area, say like Lakeview or, you know, where I'm from in New York, uh, people would certainly walk between areas that I would delineate as different neighborhoods and maybe like you couldn't say a different city, but New York City encompasses so much, right? The... I'd say even beyond you, you could probably walk from, uh, or well, you can walk, you could drive <laughs> from Washington D.C. <laughs> until Boston. There's probably um, like uninterrupted urban yeah. development for that entire stretch, right? Yeah. Of like yeah. paved, you know, massive so humanity, right? It's, so, so mm-hmm. you could probably go. I mean, if you get if you get your angle right, you could probably <laughs> walk on Chavez from D.C. to Boston without ever leaving 
a tchum, right? Because if it's constantly developed, right, so how, I don't know right. if you have any Right, so the barriers. question is, right, how is that possible, right? How is halacha ignoring the fact that these are two separate cities, right? It's, it doesn't seem right. So it doesn't seem to reflect the reality of how we, I guess, you, I don't know if you can call it the reality, but it doesn't seem to reflect how we conceive of, you know, city boundaries and, and long distances, I'd say, right? So yeah, I don't know. I don't, know. If, I, don't, hmm, I don't know. It seems like two different, because like, you could also have something which is unambiguously a really large city, but is, you know, too far to walk across on one Right, shot, like New right? York, right? Like, Chicago, you know, right. Go- I mean, New York has boroughs with rivers and stuff, but Chicago, right, you could just, you know, like they're just, right. you know, right? You could walk miles and miles, right, without leaving the yeah. city limits. And, and huh. uh, there's no physical barrier. It's just the municipal boundary is pretty big. Houston, right, right. I mean, there's, you know, is, is really, really big. The municipal boundaries of mm. Houston is, like, enormous, right? It's... Um, and maybe some other cities as well, you know, there are definitely other cities as well. So I don't, so that's, that's like one question. The second question is just that we don't have, because of suburbanization, it's not quite as, um, there's like this um, non-urban or built up developed area surrounding most cities from miles and miles and miles, right. often larger than the city itself and, and between cities. And, and so you might, depending on where you are, you, you could have, um, you know, again, like, you know, from Boston to D.C. without without any interruption in that urban area if you're right. along the I-95 corridor, right? And, and there's probably <laughs> other areas as well like that. Um, in contrast, I think of a place like like in Israel where there are lots of uh, smaller um, communities in Kibbutzim and Yishuvim where they, they clearly define boundaries and even with, like, little fences around them. And then there's open space where no one lives in between them. And in an area like that, you could very clearly you know, map out your Tchum Shabbat and, and you know, and you'd, you'd know what you were counting your 2,000 cubits from, right? Because you'd have a, you know, clearly defined um, urban areas and, and that's how, you know, that's how you'd make it work. Um, but that's kind of very different from how m- most of our areas are, are built up here in the United States. Right. So I think it's a really interesting question um, that Maya Chavruta want to take, you know, the rabbinic uh, description or reflection of uh, city life and try to figure out how that translates or doesn't translate to how we... Um, to our cities. Um, and what interests me always is then how, how did the development of rabbinic law and then our application of rabbinic law in the modern world and in our society, how does it reflect the values that, uh, that they stem from in the, in the Torah, uh, right? Of the, right, Tchum Shabbat, I, right? Like I said before, when I opened up this conversation is about, you know, staying in one place, kind of Shabbat being a place where you're in, community and you are in a world that is kind of unchanging, right? We don't modify the world around us through creative uh, milachot, through creative labor. Um, So how then, even if we can say that these large spaces, right, or these large distances can, uh, we can define them as one city since there's there's uninterrupted habitation, urbanization, right? So there is uninterrupted houses, you know, along a long stretch, even from one major city to another, right? How would our, if we're allowing travel between one place and another like that, how does that go back to reflecting, you know, Shabbos values in the Torah of kind of being in community, being settled in one place, um, rest, right? Those kind of larger Shabbos values. Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. I, I thought of something else. I thought of another, another like ramification, which you could maybe give you nothing. Something else to explore. <laughs> Go for uh, it. I, I think there's like halachot of like social welfare halachot that uh, uh-huh. in which one's residence as a member of the city, like your citizenship status, um, um, determines your 
rights to social support and your obligations to provide it, right, to pay taxes, right? How mm-hmm. long do you have to live in a place to be taxed for the, mm-hmm. you know, the soup kitchen and the, you know, all, all the various, like, social welfare institutions that Halakha requires communities yeah. to build or, you know, like, and how how long, or, or other, you know, social, like, the wall of the city and the synagogue and all, all the things that you, that Halakha expects that there'll be taxes levied on members of the Jewish community to pay for, like, mm. you know, if you live in the city, right, so, so when, when do you acquire your residency rights? So that's less about maybe like the physical boundary of the city that probably assumes that it's clear who is and who is, who's inside, who's outside, but it does hinge on being a resident of a certain municipality or certain location versus not being a resident yeah. of that location. So that might be interesting. And it is interesting. Right. And so maybe, maybe that can and throw that into your, into your, uh, no, it does go, <laughs> but right? it, it goes back to, to that idea of, okay, like what is my community? What are my, what's, what does my community provide for me? And what do I, what are my responsibilities to that community? And for, for understanding that rights and responsibilities, you have to know, well, who is my community, right? Like, what are the boundaries there? Yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's interesting. I, I once met a, 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 story, a Jewish historian who, who said to me, uh, you know, what do you have to say about the most significant, like, transformation ever to happen in Jewish history? And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, the movement from most Jews living in rural areas to living in urban areas, which happened sometime between the time of Tanakh and the time of the Mishnah. And I was like, oh, never thought of that before. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's like the most important transformation ever in Jewish history. I was like, oh, never thought of that before. But like, I think it's true, right? In the Tanakh, it seems most Jews are farmers or they live right? they live on farms, uh, not in maybe in small villages or like by themselves out on farms in the countryside. Mm-hmm. And um, if you, right, the Mishnah seems to be operating in a different world where people are, they're craftsmen, they're, uh, right, they're, they're doing, um, you know, other things. Like, you know, some, some are farmers, but, but most are living in cities. That seems to be, you know, the assumption of, of right. the Mishnah. So that seems like an important mm. important shift. Yeah. Like small-scale halacha to larger-scale halacha. Or uh, not small, just different. Uh, small-scale to larger-scale. Just scale. like different, you know, like what are people doing? How are they, right? Uh-huh. So the laws of Muktzah have to be created so that Shabbat is sufficiently different. Because if we're not farming anymore, then Shabbat is too similar to the regular weekday based on just uh-huh. the Malachot, right? But yep. for living, for, you know, if we have shops and we're living in cities, then we need like, you know, Yep. You have to have rules against using our money and things like that. Yeah, my my niece, uh, it was just my niece's birthday. She turned eight. Happy birthday. And uh, thank you. Is she a podcast <laughs> listener? I hope she should, Is she be. a podcast listener? <laughs> I don't think she's listened to the straw hat. But we were talking about exactly that, right? I think like the application of like Hilchot Shabbat to the modern world. I don't know why. This just makes me think about it, right? She got like a, a, like a bracelet weaving set for her for her present. Uh, right, a birthday present, and you know, I felt the obligation to say, "Well, oh, that's so cool!" And she's, you know, showing me the bracelets. And I'm like, you know, you know, that's not allowed on Shabbat. <laughs> she's like, "Why? I'm not, you know, doing anything that, you know, I'm not turning on the TV, right? That's people's conception now of what, you know, kind of Shabbat is. I'm uh, not yeah, using my yeah. computer. I'm not using the iPad. But actually, no. Well, weaving <laughs> is something that's back in, back in, uh, in yes. vogue as a, as a toy. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So tell me about your Agadashirim that are starting this Wednesday. Yeah. Okay. I am so excited to learn uh, some Agadah with with everyone. Uh, please, please come. The more people, the merrier, because the more people, the more chidush, which is kind of the more new things come out of the text, which is the theme of the first year um, that uh, that I'll be giving. The series is called Meaning Making in an Uncertain World, right? How do we and it focuses on Talmudic stories uh, that all center around 
trying to understand new realities or, or in the face of, in the face of new interpretations or, or, um, new circumstances, like how do I make sense of Torah's connection to my life and my life's connection to Torah? Um, right. Again, like what informs, which, which informs what, right? Does Torah shape my reality? Does reality shape Torah? All of these stories will talk about that. How do I make meaning? How do I make that's awesome. meaning? That's awesome. Um, so that's what the, so the first text is, uh, right, what's new in the Beit Midrash, right? Chidushim uh, that happen out of learning in groups and out of learning with new teachers, different eyes, different settings, right? How is it possible that there's always a chidush? And, and like the takeaway from this is, uh, I mean, there are a number of takeaways. We'll focus on um, uh, relationships between students and teachers and how different relationships enable more more creativity to emerge from Torah study. So, you know, uh, having a good relationship between students and teachers and different learning partners will, will set the tone for a lot more creativity. So we'll talk about that. But yeah, that's the, but that's the question that's asked is like, like what was new in the Beit Midrash? And the assumption is there's always something new. Even with the, by the text you've seen a hundred times, there's always something new to be found there. Can I ask about about your relationship to Agadah? How did you? Um, oh sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so did, like, was uh, I don't know. Agadah was not a major part of my yeshiva education. We, we, you know, the, the parts of the Talmud that we focused on were primarily non-Agadic. They're more halachic mm. material. I, I suspect you had a similar education. So, how, what what inspired you to like be interested in studying Agadah a little more deeply and and teaching it? Well, it depends which yeshiva you're talking about. So. Um, Certainly in my, in my primary and secondary education, right, when I started to learn Gemara, it was about just decoding the text, and it was mostly halachic texts that are, uh, focused on legal issues and conceptual issues. Uh, my introduction to the study of Agadah happened mostly in um, my studies at Trisha when I was in the summer Beit Midrash for four or five summers. <laughs> um, and that's where I uh, learned... The significance of Talmudic narrative, it was mostly with uh, Wendy Amsalom and uh, uh, Rabbi Wendy Amsalom and, and Dudi Goshen. Those are my mm. teachers from Drisha. Yeah. Good people, good people. Uh, uh, amazing, amazing Torah. And and subsequently, right, I've sought out, you know, I took a Talmudic narratives class in, at Columbia um, with uh, Professor Yuda Septimus, um, which really, and, and, so, and I've independently sought out a lot of uh, articles and literature about Talmudic narrative. There are some great books out there on Talmudic narrative. Uh, I've taught series on that <laughs> in uh, at the Columbia Hill where I worked and in, in, in so many places because I've just fallen in love with it. Um, the more you learn it, um, right, Talmudic narrative, it, it like kind of weaves together the world of, of uh, legal conversation. And again, like what I guess to pick up on the themes of, uh, you know, at the risk of being redundant, right? Legal narratives and how it kind of interacts with the world, right? How how halacha and the evolution of halacha responds to um, reality. Um, not every agadah will will talk about halacha, but that's like where the magic happens is where you see like a concept unfolding. Um, and uh, my primary interest is uh, applying literary techniques to these Talmudic texts, and you see how. Uh, how these stories, which evolved over time, um, really 
use literary techniques, like the same kind of literary study and analysis that you would use in a, in a literature class in university, right? You take them and you apply them to these, these Aramaic and Hebrew texts and you're like, wow, like they, they're really present here and they bring, once you see those, uh, right, repetition of different themes and words, evolution of concepts and uh, associations of ideas of wordplay and uh, like the way that different psukim are quoted and then interpreted in, in a variety of ways that create like a web of ideas that leave the learner emerging with something completely new, right? You didn't realize that it was there on the surface and you emerge with a completely new idea of like, oh, this text was a lot more revolutionary than if I would have just read it in passing, right? Certainly if I would have just read it in Dafyomi. Um, hey, hey. <laughs> I, I, Dafyomi's great. <laughs> I'm a fan of Ian. What are you going to do? I like fine, uh, fine. <laughs> It's great too, because right, that provides a larger context, right? Certainly, yeah, it's okay, right? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You can, it can stand. It's all right. Continue. <laughs> No, like the greater the greater awareness of context, that too, right, of literary context. When you do literary study of Mishnah, right, seeing the, a parak of Mishnah as a whole also provides you with a greater awareness of the, the way that things are linked together, right? The, the Talmud is a literary work, uh, and that's what these um, these shiurim will, will show, hopefully, and give an appreciation for of how, right, the Talmud as a whole and also individual sections have literary ties and themes and uh, and and um, devices present within them that, you know, people as ancient as, uh, you know, the people from the year 200 or the year 450 were using when they uh, composed these texts or shaped these this oral tradition uh, in a way that was passed down in a way that could impact us as readers, right? They were aware of what they were doing. They were aware of how they were shaping it and giving over the Torah. So it's not just content, it's form. And... Um, that that's the power of the agada to me, and hopefully you'll join me for that conversation. We'll we'll analyze the relationship between content and form, and the messages that come out through the different literary devices. Um, that that's the methodology broadly. Oh, wow. uh, it's a lot that's of fun. That's really awesome. That's awesome. So this is uh, it's four Wednesday evenings, and the the information on the Zoom link is on the Shul website, and it'll be in emails from the Shul. It's on Facebook. It's on the Shul's Facebook page. All sorts of ways you can find out how to participate, and um, so please do. And you know, so that that sounds really really great. Um, you're teaching the parent child learning this this month. Uh, what, what's your what's your question? Yes, I am. Okay, so the question for this month's parent child learning is how do I live a good life? Okay, big question. What does it mean to live a good life, right? And we're going to be looking at the story of Abraham and Sarah, particularly as we reflect on the death of Sarah in this week's Parsha, Um, right? We know that the the years of Sarah were 127 and how we use the different, that the the Pasuk emphasizes this number, right? The Yemei, how she, she lived her years. And Rashi there comments, on that pasuk and says that all of Sarah's years, when when the pasuk emphasizes they were 120 and seven, right, and all of those years were good, they were they were shavin tova, they were equally good. Uh, and when you reflect on that a little bit, you take a step back and you say, well, Rashi, where are you getting that from, right? What do you mean all of her years were good? Clearly, Sarah and Abraham lived a turbulent life. They faced hardships, right? Really, really challenging hardships um, throughout. Right, being barren, wandering from their homeland, being taken captive, right? wars, dis, you know, land disputes, uh, you know, we can go on, right? They faced a lot of challenges. 
And yet the Torah wants us to, to know that their years were good. And so the question is, or that Sarah's years were good, and we will take a text on Avraham and show that his years were good. And actually, I'm going to be incorporating a, a question from Rabbi Sachs, right? Is that, you know, we know that they both had great missions in life, a mission to build a nation, a mission to affect the people around them and build a more moral society. And like, so clearly their work wasn't done when, when their lives ended. And so what does that mean to live a life that's good, that was full of hardship and full of like cliffhangers, right? They, they didn't finish their life's work. So how was their life considered so good? What, what does it mean that they had a good life? So that's what we're going to be thinking about. And I want you all to be thinking about it, and then come learn with me and have this discussion uh, through the sources and we'll see what we come up with. Oh, wow. That sounds really great. I'm kind of curious with the answer. So, so you're gonna. Sh- <laughs> so there's gonna be a source sheet with with video questions sent to parents, uh, yes. families on on Thursday and on Sunday. Uh, we can uh, after I have a chance to study this with our children in grades uh, two through five. We have a chance to uh, you know have a conversation with you about it on Sunday. Um, Absolutely. But uh, everyone else, if you're not a child, if you're not a parent, you can still think about these questions and uh, yeah. Um, Get back to us with your with your answers. I, I I'm gonna preface it with I don't know that I have one answer, right? I think good questions are, are more important than good answers because often there aren't. Fair point. Fair point. So uh, <laughs> I'll be awaiting your questions and answers as well. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Straw Hats. This is Straw Hat producer Haley Leventhal. As always, we love to hear your feedback. So feel free to reach out to us and let us know what you think of the podcast or what you want to hear in future episodes. Um, I know for a lot of you, your podcast listening routine has probably been shaken up. Uh, maybe you're, you used to listen on your commute and that's not happening anymore. Um, but we really appreciate you all still listening and sticking with us. Um, As always, please have a very safe and healthy week, and we will see you again for our next episode uh, just before Thanksgiving in two weeks.